Uh, welcome to you all. Uh, my name is Alan Rennick. I'm the Deputy Director of the Constitution Unit and I'm your chair for this seminar. The title of the seminar is Reforming Elections, Assessing the Government's Proposals. And the proposals referred to come in two pieces of legislation, the Elections Bill and the Online Safety Bill. The Elections Bill proposes to change many aspects of electoral law if passed in its current form, it will introduce voter ID at polling stations in Great Britain, tighten up rules around postal and proxy votes, uh, subject the Electoral Commission to greater oversight, alter the franchise, reform rules on campaign spending, introduce limited transparency rules for digital advertising, and much else besides. And last week, the government announced that it wants to expand the bill to replace the current voting system for mayoral and police and crime commissioner elections with first past the post. The online safety bill, meanwhile, extends far beyond standard constitution unit territory, including online harms to children and prevention of terrorism. But here we'll be focusing on what it says, or perhaps more strikingly does not say, in relation to political speech, information and disinformation. Some of the proposals in these bills have been widely welcomed, but many are controversial. Some people, and cards on the table, I'm one of them, fear that some of the proposals risk undermining democracy, while in other respects, the proposals may fail to address significant problems that have emerged in our democracy. So there's much to discuss, and to help us do so, we have a panel of four excellent speakers, whom I will introduce in the order in which they will make their opening remarks. First, I should say that we have a change in our lineup, as you might have noticed. Craig Westwood was due to join us from the Electoral Commission, but he's unfortunately unable to do so because of illness. Uh, we're very sorry to lose Craig, but we're delighted to welcome more than ably filling Craig's shoes, Louise Edwards, the Electoral Commission's Director of Regulation, and Louise will speak first. Following Louise, we will hear from Laura Locke, the Deputy Chief Executive of the Association of Electoral Administrators. Then Justin Fisher will speak. Justin is Professor of Political Science and Director of the Policy Unit at Brunel University and a leading expert on elections and election rules. And last but very much not least, we're joined by Baroness Morgan of Coates, Nikki Morgan. Nikki was Secretary of State for digital culture, media and sport between 2019 and 2020, and therefore oversaw the online safety bill during part of its early gestation. She's now vice chair of the APPG on digital regulation and responsibility. So each speaker will offer opening remarks of about five minutes. We'll then have a panel discussion for perhaps 20 minutes, and then we'll open the floor to your questions. The questions will be gathered today by Lisa James. So if you have a question that you would like to put to the panel, please write it in the Q&A function rather than the chat function. Lisa will select a broad range of questions and ask the person who submitted each question to unmute themselves and ask it directly to the panel or the panelists. If you would rather not ask your question directly, please let Lisa know when you submit your question and she will ask it on your behalf. And a final note before I hand over to our first speaker, the whole session, including the Q&A, is being recorded and it'll be posted online on the Constitution Unit website, our YouTube channel and our podcast after the event. 
So if you speak, you will be seen and or heard on the recording. If you don't speak, you will not be seen or heard. We will let you know when the recording is available and we hope you might want to share it with others. So that's very much more than enough from me. I will hand over to our first speaker, who is Louise Edwards from the Electoral Commission. Louise, welcome. Thank you, Alan, and thank you for the invite to be here today. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be replacing Craig on the panel. Um, I'm going to focus on the elections bill uh, for my opening remarks and on two of the measures in particular that it contains. The issue of the governance of the Electoral Commission has become quite a key part of the debate about this bill. And indeed, the introduction to this event asks whether tighter parliamentary control over the Commission will harm our independence. The first really key point is that parliamentary scrutiny is an essential part of what the Commission is. In fact, from this April, we will report formally to all three of the UK's parliaments, UK, Scotland and Wales. And we really welcome the broad perspectives that we get from across the political spectrum from that level of accountability. Now, the bill proposes what's called a strategy and policy statement for the Commission. And a really key question for us is about the extent to which this can go beyond that essential scrutiny into directing and guiding our decision making on operational matters. Now, while the proposed statement will have to be approved by Parliament, it is by its nature a vehicle for the government of the day to set out its strategic priorities for the Commission. Now, I should say very clearly, it is perfectly reasonable for the UK government to set out its priorities for us. Indeed, we already pay significant attention to what all of the UK's government's priorities and indeed governments across the UK and our role in implementing them successfully as well. But the Commission's independence must be clear and its ability to take decisions on where and how to focus its efforts must allow for the balance between the needs and desires of all its stakeholders across the UK and including, most crucially, those of the voter. One political party should not have privileged influence and control over how we operate. Now, the government notes that similar frameworks are in place for other regulators. We are, of course, not quite like other regulators because we regulate the party of government as a political party. We also regulate its political competitors and indeed all campaigners who want to influence how people vote. And it is difficult to see how our independence is maintained and safeguarded when a statement from one stakeholder can, for example, comprise operational guidance and ultimately open us to accountability by the courts for the way that we have regard to it. It is essential to any electoral commission that it must have strategic and operational independence. And that must also be very clear for voters and campaigners to see. It's the actual and the perceived independence of our oversight and control that's a key aspect of this. Now, of course, uh, the minister, or as it is now the previous minister, did make very public commitments to maintaining our independence, which we very much welcome. But the provisions in the elections bill themselves as currently drafted are not consistent with us being an independent regulator. And as we, we have seen in the past week, ministers change, as indeed do governments. And so this needs to be addressed if we're able to assure ourselves of the ability to command public confidence far into the future. Moving to my second area of focus, voter ID has been the subject of heated debates from the government's pilots in 2018 and 19 through to the early stages of the bill. There are many questions that one can ask about voter ID, but I think the Constitution Unit has actually posed us the most important one here. Will it reduce access to the ballot? The starting point to consider is that in any democracy, if it's to function effectively, the electoral system must be both secure and accessible. Now, voter ID is a policy which is primarily designed to address security concerns, in this instance about polling station voting. 
Indeed, international democratic organizations have highlighted concerns about our system and the lack of any form of ID verification. And 66% of respondents to our public opinion surveys have said that the show ID would make them more confident in the security of the process. Checks have already been built into postal voting and voter registration. Now in 2019, we did a report on the government's voter ID pilots, and we noted that the valuable focus on security needs to be considered alongside both workability and crucially accessibility. This remains our position today, and this is how we look at the bill. The government has published details of different kinds of ID which will be eligible. Now we know that they are very commonly held, but they're not universally held. We also know that the proportion of people without ID is higher among certain demographic groups, including those from lower socioeconomic groups, those with disabilities and the unemployed. Now we've always recommended that a free of charge and easily obtainable voter card be provided as in Northern Ireland and have welcomed the government's commitment to implementing this. Key to bridging the accessibility gap though is not just the card itself. The process for applying for it and collecting it needs to be very easy and available nearby to people. Now much of this and how it's to be done will follow in secondary legislation, but we have been calling on the government to share it now to enable its accessibility to be assessed during the passage of the bill. Now, Should the voter ID measure pass, the Commission will play a central role in ensuring that the policy can be implemented successfully. We'll prepare detailed new guidance for electoral administrators, we'll undertake new public awareness work to ensure that people understand the new requirement in good time. And in developing that approach, we'll be working closely with a range of organisations who represent the groups less likely to have ID to help them make sure the message reaches them and to understand what they need to do. And indeed, we fully expect that the government will be having equivalent conversations as well as they develop the detail. So that's just two of the important questions posed about our independence and about voter ID. And I hope that that starts to set out the Commission's position on them. That's great, Louise. Thank you very much. And remember, if anyone would like to ask a question to Louise or any other panellist, then do put it in the Q&A function. I can see a few questions already coming in now. Uh, we move over to Laura Locke from the Association of Electoral Administrators. So following on from Louise, I thought it would be interesting for people uh, listening today to hear a little bit more about some of the context. We're fearing that the election bill is often going to be seen in isolation without actually looking at where we are as a democracy and how our elections are run. So to just set the scene a little bit, we've got elements of our election process that date back to the 1872 Ballot Act, having you know, pieces of paper and pencils on strings. A lot of that still harks back to then. But we need to look at actually when did elections fundamentally change? And that's the representation of the People Act 1983. That gave us our, the framework that we work to now largely. And from an outside perspective, not much may have seemed to have changed since 1983, but actually there have been 29 pieces of primary legislation that have impacted how elections are run. And there have been 68 pieces of secondary legislation that impact elections and electoral registration. We've gone from a system where you could register to vote once a year. Where did you live in October? That was the date that mattered uh, to various uh, developments that have led us to a stage now where you can register to vote just 12 days before an election. That puts a huge amount of pressure to registered people and we see millions of people, well over half a million people registered to vote on the last possible day before the last parliamentary. A huge amount of pressure there. 
In the year 2000, we had postal voting on demand introduced. So when the 83 Act went through, we had three quarters of a million people able to register to vote by post. Um, but in 2019, over 8.2 million postal votes were issued for that election. We've got to remember this is an awful lot of paper of thing, and things that are being done in very short time frames. Since the 83 Act, there are an awful lot more elections to run. We have police and crime commissioners. We have combined authority mayors. Uh, we have business improvement districts, neighbourhood planning referendums. You know, it's a much more crowded electoral landscape. There are also new requirements now in areas such as community governance reviews, uh, polling district reviews, refreshing postal vote identifiers, which again, the bill makes some changes to. All of this as well is in the backdrop of local authorities arguably having their resources and funding decimated from central government. People have got to do an awful lot more with an awful lot less in many ways. It's against the backdrop of devolved nations. So the election bill and the impact that it will have on voters, particularly in Wales and Scotland, uh, where we don't know if all elements will align and to then to navigate as an election administrator or as a voter, can I vote in this election? Am I eligible in this one? Do I show ID in this poll? And again, it'll be really important to see what the Welsh and Scottish governments choose to do in that respect. We've also got to look at local government reorganisation. I've spent the morning with colleagues from Cumbria, North Yorkshire and Somerset, where we're having new councils set up next year. So a huge amount of change there. So we are not in a good place already. Our association has published a blueprint that we believe needs to be enacted for a modern electoral landscape um, because there are so many challenges. And how is the election bill going to add to these? Louise rightly raised, we need to make sure people can get hold of voter ID cards. They're accessible, they're easy for them to access. But the burden for that is going to fall with local councils. How will it be implemented? How will it be supported? We saw ahead of the polls this year, as we have it every year, we can no longer find enough staff to work in polling stations. People don't want to be working for 15 hour days in village halls anymore. When you're going to ask them to start checking ID cards, filling in forms every time a postal vote's handed in, using new ways of enabling people with disabilities to access the polls, which is vitally important, but another challenge to overcome. Will the handling of postal votes disenfranchise legitimate electors? You know, if you're going to go down to the polling station with postal votes for your spouse and your two children, you won't be able to hand all of those in. You know, political parties and anyone who's wanting to commit fraud would be able to see ways around this. It's important that we don't have uh, genuine voters disenfranchised because of elements of the law they weren't aware had changed. Do the restrictions on candidates handling postal votes go far enough? So candidates, political parties, campaigners won't be able to handle postal votes. But is it still right that they can handle application forms, that they can do mailings and they can farm in all the applications that then get to EROs at some point ahead of the poll, hopefully before the deadline? Proxy arrangements, there's new restrictions on how many um, people you can act as a proxy for, but we don't have any centralised electoral register. So whilst these restrictions are there, it's still a system based on trust. You know, should we be going further and looking at a national, nationally held electoral register for these sorts of checks? Are we doing enough to enable overseas electors to vote? So uh, my fellow panellist Justin is going to look at overseas in more detail in a moment. But 
we're, in, we're going to increase the franchise for overseas electors, but there are no plans to actually make it easier for them to vote. If you register to vote and you live in Australia, you can vote register 12 days before the election. How are we going to get that postal vote to Australia and back? It's relying on the proxy system. Should we be doing more? As um, you may well know, supplementary vote system is going to um, be passed in favour of first past the post if the government's amendment goes through. Again, when is that going to come into force? What is the impact on democracy? And that's certainly a question for some of the panelists. And also, again, as well as seeing it in the landscape, there are other pieces of legislation and work going on that impact the running of elections. So the dissolution and calling of parliament bill um, means we're back to having snap parliamentary elections. They can be called at 25 working days notice. There are several MPs who are keen to reduce the election timetable to 17 working days. We are very clear that that is not administratively possible. You know, we, we how do we send out 8.2 million postal votes in 17 working days? You, our printers are telling us we couldn't get the paper, we couldn't get the envelopes. New parliamentary boundaries, that all needs to be navigated um, as well, and the change of those. To summarise, and apologies as ever, I've gone over time, but the electoral landscape is already very difficult to navigate for all stakeholders. It's really important that the election bill that is going to add to the burden uh, is possibly the motivator for the government to consider whether we actually need a brand new elections act and whether that's going to be in the best interests of those running elections and those using UK democracy. Thanks, Alan. Great, Laura. Thank you very much. A huge amount to think about there. Uh, all sorts of issues going beyond the, the bill itself. Very, very good. Uh, Justin, on to you. Thank you, Alan. So picking up on what uh, uh, Laura and Louise have said, I want to make three points. Um, I think first off, it's important to say that there are some positive measures in the bill but they do require more thought to be effective and to operate in the way that it, they're, they're intended to do. Secondly, I think that the, some aspects of the elections bill represent a wholly disproportionate response. I should give some examples of that. And then thirdly, uh, more thought I think needs to be given to how we run elections in the future. So to illustrate that, let's start with notional ex uh, expenditure. Now, for those of you um, who are less familiar with party finance rules. This refers to the difficulties in ascribing expenditure to either the party at national level or the candidate at constituency level. And this is not a new issue. This has been an issue in British politics since the early 1950s, uh, where a couple of test cases meant that you could put billboards up and that would count as national expenditure rather than on the candidate. And lots of solutions have been proposed by various reformers, but all of them create a particular difficulties. And actually, I think the government's proposals, which build on current arrangements, probably represent the best approach or perhaps the least worst, least bad approach uh, to this, this very difficult issue. But the lessons of the 2015 election, where some um, uh, uh, candidates uh, and uh, agents uh, were investigated by the police and indeed some ended up in court, means that there needs to be some further tightening of the rules. Now, it seems to me that the only workable solution here is that there is a clear documentary trail. Who authorises what expenditure? And the wording in the bill at present is too woolly in that respect. 
there needs to be a named responsible person in party headquarters who may authorize any spending in constituencies. Because what it's essential to do is to avoid the prospect of blame being shifted when there's a lack of clarity about where the spending should be uh, ascribed. And that was a problem in 2015. It's been a problem in previous elections as well. The second uh, aspect is in respect of third parties. Now here we have to recognize that regulating third parties in elections is about the most difficult thing that you can do. And internationally, nobody has really cracked it. So there are two particular proposals that I want to focus on. The first is on the ban on registering both as a political party and as a third party. Now, at first sight, you might say, this is brilliant. It's a logical step to prevent the artificial inflation of spending limits. But Justin, can I, can, Justin, sorry, can I just ask you to define what a third party is? Because okay, we, we so, often think third party is the Liberal Democrats, but in yes, this context, yes. it means or, something Or indeed else. the SNP. Um, <laughs> so um, a third party is what we call a non-party campaigner. This is uh, an organisation that takes part in elections, but does not themselves stand for election. So that could be a trade union, it could be a pressure group, it could be a business organisation. Now, this, this ban on registering both as a party and a third party seems to me to be an enormous overreaction. Since 2014, there has only been one case recorded where anybody did this. And even in that case, the organisation only reported spending against the party limit, not the third party limit. And the problem, it seems to me, is this can present unintentional unintended and potentially excessive disadvantages for third parties. Now, the example I gave in my evidence uh, to, to the, the Public Bill Committee and indeed to the Select Committee was the, the hypothetical campaign to prevent hospital closures. But in the particular constituencies, there might be a particular hospital that was under threat where this group wanted to stand candidates. Now, with this um, proposal, what you would end up with is these groups artificially disassociating themselves from each other. And this presents, seems to me, a, a great problem in terms of effectively creating a rule that people have to avoid breaking rather than enhancing democracy. The second aspect of third parties is the coordinated spending between third parties and political parties. Now, again, this sounds like a great idea. The problem is the existing legislation that we have is not fit for purpose. And this was tested to almost destruction in the 2016 referendum. Now, of course, this is not parties and third parties as such. These are what we call designated campaigners, vote leave or uh, the remain group and registered campaigners, all the other people who get involved in uh, elections. Uh, in, in referendums. And what we found when we studied these people after the referendum was that hardly anybody understood the rules. And what happened was that all these groups artificially divorced themselves from like-minded groups simply to avoid unintended breaches. Now, it seems to me that whilst this uh, proposal is well-intentioned, the difficulties that we observed in 2016 are likely to be amplified with more regular elections. It will build uncertainty upon uncertainty for third parties and political parties. And it seems to me 
that uh, we should not proceed with this until the existing rules have been thoroughly re-examined to check that they'll work. Now, the final two points I want to make uh, have been touched on. One is in regards of the Electoral Commission. Now, I, I would uh, make the point that there is already parliamentary accountability. There is already political oversight. But I think the point that I'd like to contribute here is that actually this is a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. If you ask the people who have most knowledge on the ground of how elections are run, election agents, what you find election after election is very high levels of satisfaction with the work that the Electoral Commission does. The Electoral Commission in its guidance ensures that elections run very, very well. So this is the sort of thing uh, that is completely out of kilter with the evidence. The final point I want to make is in respect of scrapping the 15 year qualification for overseas voters. This is something that Laura touched on. As Laura said, this will expand the um, number of people eligible to vote. But it seems to me that the bill represents a missed opportunity. As Laura illustrated when she spoke of the, the hypothetical voter in Australia, what it means is that there is a growth in the number of voters who will be vulnerable to the vagaries of postal services outside of the United Kingdom. And therefore, it seems to me that if you're going to expand the number of people living overseas who can vote in the United Kingdom, you should give consideration to the prospect of voting online for expatriates, as is done in the case of Switzerland, and where it's been very successfully implemented in three different cantons. So it does seem to me, whatever the merits of scrapping the 15-year rule, that this is an opportunity to make things better for those voters, and as Laura says, probably better for the electoral administrators as well. Justin, thank you very much. Uh, lots of fascinating material again. And we move finally to Nikki Morgan. Well, good afternoon, everybody. And Alan, thank you for that uh, introduction. Thank you to my fellow panellists for uh, plenty of thought-provoking uh, material, which I can see is generating uh, lots of uh, questions, uh, which is going to be great. Um, I was going to focus very much on the online safety bill, uh, which, as Alan said, I obviously um, helped to get onto the next uh, iteration and stage of its uh, gestation when I was uh, Culture Secretary, um, but uh, also touch a little bit on a couple of points on the uh, elections uh, bill. Um, and Louise rightly um, started her remarks, I think, I think putting all this in context, I mean, she said where we are as a democracy, how our democracy is, is working. And I think in terms of the online uh, world, um, I've been involved in politics since, um, well, I joined my political party in uh, 1989 and I, I first really got involved in elections in 1992. Um, and the way that uh, elections um, work, but also in a way where the debates happen, this massive growth of the impact of the online world, online campaigning, all of the different platforms, um, I, I think has had a truly phenomenal uh, impact on, uh, on, on how elections are conducted. I think the jury is still out in many ways though, on whether everything that people see online really influences ultimately how they vote. Um, and uh, that is particularly relevant and part of many of the debates I had post the 2016 referendum. In terms of the online safety bill, I, mean, I think firstly, 
One of the things to note is the fact that the title of the bill changed from online harms to online safety. Uh, and that I think captures one of the big debates we're going to, to see around this, uh, this bill um, about the uh, balance, getting the balance right between um, protecting people from, from harm and harmful content, but also this freedom of speech, freedom of expression. And I don't think we should underestimate the philosophical debate that's going to be both in parliament and outside about the fact that should the internet be regulated at all? Now, my very firm view is that actually, I think that time for that debate has actually probably passed slightly um, and that we have these platforms now with these enormous power. And in many cases, actually the platforms themselves, not they are setting up mechanisms, they, they deploy human interaction, artificial intelligence to take down content. But actually, I think there are times when they uh, wish that somebody else would help them to take some of the decisions about taking down content rather than leaving it to uh, private uh, sector uh, platforms and, and, and companies. So the real um, relevance for today's debate, obviously, um, are clauses 5 and 13 of the draft bill relating to the duties to be placed on category one companies, which is still to be uh, defined. Um, those companies that particularly host user to user generated content and clause 13 sets out the duties to protect content of democratic democratic importance. I won't go through all of that, uh, that section, um, but if you take the context, actually having something captured in legislation, which says there is a duty on those tech platforms to uh, protect content of democratic uh, importance, recognize the fact they also have the power to take down content of democratic importance. Um, now, those debates within those companies, within all can campaigners and candidates and parties about what is uh, democratically uh, important in terms of content um, you know, is really only just, uh, just starting. Um, and uh, what obviously the bill seeks to do is to make it um, a requirement for those tech platforms to have very clear redress mechanisms, complaints mechanisms, Ofcom we required to produce codes of uh, practice um, and obviously so that people know when their content may be uh, taken down or may be left. Now I take the point and I'm sure we'll come across it when it'll come up it'll be debated in the Q&A which is how perhaps the focus of the bill has changed in relation to what we all might think is harmful, what we wish to see, we think should be, it shouldn't be on the, the internet. But all I would say is that I think the bill is, um, it's a big first step. It is not the end of the debate on these issues. It is world leading in terms of the way overall it's proposing to regulate uh, content. And one of the other perspectives I wanted to give today um, is that of course, I think I'm the only, I think, um, unless people are going to confess, I'm the only person on the panel who has stood for election, uh, both in the pre-internet and internet world. And of course, much of the harmful content uh, relates often to very intimidatory uh, materials and um, uh, statements relating to individuals who are standing for uh, election, which will often be dealt with in relation to perhaps other harmful content. And uh, obviously, there is also a debate to be had in, in this country about how we uh, um, uh, allow people to post things that we might not like. But as Trevor Phillips, I think it was, who said recently, there is a freedom to be offended, uh, which we also need to factor into our political debates and election campaigns um, uh, as well. 
so just looking very briefly at the uh, elections bill and colleagues have raised other very relevant uh, debates and points, which I know we'll, we'll come up with um, in the uh, Q&A. Um, but there are two things that I wanted to, to raise. I mean, firstly, obviously, um, I'm now commenting on elections bill and Louise's, um, Laura has set out the, the number of elections that are happening. But of course, the big one, the parliamentary election, I'm also probably the only person on the panel who will now not be able to vote at the next general election, uh, which actually is a bigger thing than you might think if you've been a candidate in a general uh, election. But I am particularly focused and uh, supportive of both the changes being proposed in relation to the imprints on digital campaigning materials. There is no doubt uh, that again, with the uh, electoral field having widened to include the online uh, platforms, that actually the proliferation of digital content, which cannot be traced back to either a party or to a third party campaign was absolutely something that needed to be uh, tackled. But also I'm very thankful to see proposed sanctions on the intimidation of candidates. Um, and uh, you know, as somebody who has been through that, who's had people prosecuted, um, of course, robust political debate, both online and offline, is absolutely a feature of our democracy. Um, Laura rightly uh, tied elections right back to uh, legislation from the 19th century. Well, I think it's probably fair to say it was pretty robustious then in terms of standing up and um, the electorates might have been smaller, but the debates were certainly no less uh, heartfelt. Uh, but when I hear about local council candidates and others who are on the receiving end of some truly uh, intimidatory behaviour, and I'm sure that Laura and colleagues will sadly have had things reported to them as well, then that is another facet of our election um, field, if you like, in the United Kingdom that also I'm very pleased to see that this bill is tackling. So, um, Alan, I will leave it there and look forward to the Q&A. Fantastic, Nikki. Thank you very much. Uh, very helpful comments again. So. Um, the Q&A we will go to in just a moment. So just to remind you, if you'd like to ask a question to any or all of the panelists, then do please put your question into the Q&A function here on Zoom down at the bottom of your screen. Um, uh, just before we get there though, let me uh, put a few questions to the panelists. And uh, Nikki, shall we pick up with you, uh, seeing, seeing what you said is still fresh in the mind. So um, the online safety bill, as, as you said, the name has changed. It yeah. was originally, it originated in a white paper called Online Harms, yeah. the Online Harms white paper in 2019. And from the point of view of this audience, I think one of the striking changes from that time is that the Online Harms white paper talked a lot about the dangers to democracy posed by misinformation and how that can cause uh, harm to trust in the political system, uh, undermine uh, confidence and so on. And indeed, many would see that we saw a perfect illustration, if you like, perfect is maybe the wrong word, on the 6th of January in, on Capitol Hill of what can go tragically wrong in a democratic system if misinformation online is allowed to be rampant. Those provisions have entirely gone or almost entirely gone uh, from, from the bill. Um, could I ask, do you think that's a good thing or do you think the, the, that focus on misinformation and harm to democracy as such rather than harm to individuals should be restored as part of the bill? Well, I think probably partly the bill intends to tackle this in a different way. Um, and um, I mean, there is a very live debate. I mean, obviously, um, we all have views on what we think is misinformation. Um, but of course, one person's misinformation is another person's um, freedom of expression. 
And uh, it's put, the, obviously, the tech platforms in a difficult position. I think it puts governments in a difficult position. And so I think much actually will hinge. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, much of the online safety bill debate will be around what is going to be in the Ofcom codes of practice and what is going to be in the secondary legislation, the regulations that the sector of state is able to, uh, to lay. And, of course, the bill uh, starts off as illegal content, which I think we would all agree, terrorism, child sexual exploitation type. And then you step down to content that is harmful for children um, and people with particular sort of uh, attributes, particular vulnerabilities. And then you end up with content that is harmful to, to adults. And that definition of harmful, I think, is going to be really uh, critical there. So I wouldn't say that I wouldn't agree that there's no uh, tackling of misinformation. And I think um, obviously you have to, they will look at it in the context of who is receiving the misinformation. But I think the way that the democratic content uh, provisions have been drafted, obviously there is an expectation that things can be taken down. So that could include presidential tweets uh, from somebody in the White House. Perhaps it's a bad example because perhaps we should think about prime ministerial tweets from Downing Street, for example, because we're talking about debate in the UK, political debate in the UK. But the person, you, people using those services need to know in what context their postings would be, uh, would be deleted. I think that's what's going to be the real sea change and the, the platforms having to think about um, setting out in advance when they would take things down not just leaving it to the board of the tech platform or some oversight committee uh, to, to decide uh, there and then. But I think all these things are going to be live. And the, the, the danger with the bill, and I, I will I'll stop after this, is that um, you end up hanging so much on it that actually ultimately it falls over. Um, and so I think, you know, when in government and, and ministers since have actually made the correct decision, which is hopefully correct, which is we need to get started on this as a principle of regulating what the tech platforms, how they behave and everything else. Um, and I think that this is probably going to be something we will revisit a number of times in Parliament in the decade, well, years and decades to come. I just saw very briefly there, somebody was just posting, they said there's no online safety bill on the government website. That's because it's not a bill that's been presented to Parliament yet. Um, it's going through scrutiny. Both um, there's a special pre-legislative bill committee that's been set up, but also, Alan, I think you were saying uh, that you have given evidence to the DCMS Select Committee subcommittee so if you just search on Google for online safety bill, it will come up because it's been published by the government. Right. Thank you, Nikki. And uh, you just one other question to you. You, you mentioned there the, the fact that quite a lot of the detail is awaited in secondary legislation. And here at the Constitution Unit, we're, of course, very concerned about process questions. And one of yes. the big questions is around how much is in primary legislation and how much is left to secondary legislation. And it has struck quite a few people, I think, with yeah. this bill that an awful lot seems to be left to secondary legislation, which means potentially that ministers are making regulations and deciding democratically very important yeah. things without the same degree of parliamentary scrutiny. Um, would you want to see more going into the, the bill itself as it goes through parliament? Yes, broadly speaking, um, I can quite see again why the draftsmen have done it uh, this way, partly because it's such a new area of, 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 of law and, and regulation. It, I say new, I mean, obviously, there are many parallels with, and there's already a lot of offline content, if I can put it that way, that is obviously clearly regulated in things like broadcasting codes um, and elsewhere. So it's not entirely new. But um, my 
my new home in the Lords, they um, also don't like secondary legislation very much. And I think that there will definitely, I suspect, be a change in balance as the bill goes through Parliament, more being potentially on the face of the bill. Um, one of the things that I think is being explored is whether Ofcom's codes of practice could be um, published in draft form or there could be more, more discussion about them as the bill is going through its formal parliamentary stages as well. And that might also help with discussions to, to, to know these things. But um, I'm, I'm absolutely certain, Alan, that that will definitely be part of the discussions in Parliament. Great, thank you. Um, and let me pursue a, a similar kind of issue with the three other speakers, if I may, and then we will go to the, the Q&A, um, which is the question around how we legislate on a matter such as this. And clearly elections are incredibly important and the fairness of elections is incredibly important. And Louise alluded in her remarks to the dangers of um, electoral processes being skewed in, in the interests of one particular political party. And clearly that can come in if the changes that are being introduced to the governance of the Electoral Commission, uh, if, if those come in. But it also affects the legislative process itself. And uh, so, Justin, you expressed concern that some aspects of this bill seem not properly to have been thought through. Laura, you talked about the fact that there are all sorts of complexities um, and perhaps what we need is a thorough revision of electoral law rather than just a kind of ad hoc set of measures that are addressing particular points. I wonder if each of you could comment on whether you think the process that the government is following with this legislation is as good as it should be, or whether we should be trying to tackle these issues in a, in a different, through a different uh, mechanism. Louise, do you want to start? Electoral law is, is a slightly odd thing because it is of necessity created by a small subset of the people who are involved in then using electoral law in election campaigns. And it is important to remember, first of all, that the UK government and indeed the Scottish and Welsh governments have won their elections. Um, and, you know, they are the governments of the day and they are, of course, entitled to put bills before Parliament and to have parliamentary scrutiny. You then have to remember, of course, that Parliament is also quite a small subset of the people who campaign in the political system. Um, there are around 400 registered political parties and who knows how many organisations and individuals out there who want to campaign. That's before you get to candidates and agents as well. There's a huge number of people who want to try and be involved in this process and a very small number of them who get to sort of try and look at the law. And that's why it's usually important that there is a sort of a wide consultative process and a lot of input into changes to electoral law. Now, there has been some of that over recent years. There was a consultation on protecting the debate that the government run. There was a review by uh, Pickles on electoral fraud, for example. And many parliamentary committees and others have looked at things like digital imprints. So there's been a sort of wider conversation around the policy intent that has ended up in this particular bill. But there's also the fact that that policy intent is of course formed by manifesto promises, which, you know, again, they stood for election on that manifesto. So there's a lot of influences that go in. What we would say though, what we have said to government is it's hugely important that measures are tested with those who are going to actually have to use them. Justin mentioned the, the vagaries of notional spending about which I know far too much, um, but actually I'm not the expert in using them. They need to be tested with agents, with candidates, with parties who are going to actually have to apply them in the heat of a campaign. Uh, and that's where we think perhaps more could be done on some of these measures to really understand how they're gonna be used by the practitioners, uh, including the electoral community uh, and parties and campaigners as well, 
Uh, and I think that would provide a level of reassurance that wherever we end up with the provisions in the bill, they're actually going to help in practice. Laura? Thanks, Anna. I think it's a well-known fact that uh, the AEA thinks we should have a single election act. It thinks that we need to go further than just consolidating electoral law and we actually need to start again and look at, look at this. I think in terms of the elections bill, there have been some um, amendments, as we mentioned, the SV amendment that have come late in the day. But for our members trying to read the bill and what the bill means, it's almost impossible to navigate when it's an amendment to a clause that's an amendment to another clause. It's very, very difficult for people to understand actually what that bill is saying, what information it is. And it's only when the secondary legislation begins to be laid that people can really understand a lot of the detail that's coming through. I think really we feel that there's a need to start actually having a blank sheet of paper approach and saying, what, what do we want our democracy to look like? Let's try to ensure that some of the issues that we face on a regular basis um, can be resolved. So um, members listen to him, it's still a thing called parish polls. So you can have a parish poll and you can't have poll cards and you can't have postal votes and the polling hours are four till nine and you still need one of those stamping instruments to put holes in the ballot paper. Um, is that still what we want to be, to be running? To? Are there better ways to do things? Should we be considering, um, you know, neighbourhood planning referendums came in um, some time ago. The overwhelming majority of neighbourhood planning referendums have got 90% of people voting in favour of them. Is that still a good use of public money to be running them? Or should actually the law simply be changed to say the council must be mindful of things? So as ever, it's for the government to decide on what, what law it brings and arguably rightly so. But I think our particular concern is we keep bolting on new processes, new principles, new ways of working without ever having taken a step back to look at some of the broader issues that actually the time may have come to say, you know, is the 1872 Ballot Act still uh, the fundamental basis that we want to run these polls on? And the answer to that may be yes, but equally, it may be not quite yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Justin. Um, well, I, I mean, I would have endorsed much as what's been said here, but I think it's important to stress that in terms of party political interest in these things, both parties, when they've been in government, have been guilty of changing the law where they thought it might be to their advantage. Uh, Labour, of course, did this in 2009 by extending the regulated period for candidates uh, when the Conservatives became very successful at spending money before the regulated period. But I think, you know, there is a sense in which election law inevitably is reactive. New things crop up. Now, Nikki talked about digital campaigning. And of course, you know, when Papira uh, was uh, first introduced in 2000, there was no such thing as Facebook and so on and so forth. So we have to react. Things like the Election Administ Electoral Administration Act in 2006, which put loans on the same footing as donations, that was a reaction to the problem. In some ways, it's a bit like tax law. Now, that doesn't make it easy for, for Laura and her colleagues, or indeed Louise and her colleagues, but I think there's an element of inevitability about that. And, you know, whereas I think we should always take a step back, but at the same time, if we wait for a consolidated law on elections, we'll be here in 50 years' time. We had a massive overview and effectively a consolidated act with Papira in 2000, but that was the first time it had really been attempted. And what that came from 
was not from Parliament, but from the Committee on Standards in Public Life. So I think there is scope for this. I'm not sure that Parliament is the best place to do it, but I think in the meantime, we have to accept that a lot of electoral law is going to be reactive. But if it is reactive, I think it needs to be better thought through. And I think there are some examples which I've highlighted where the consequences, such as the ones that Louise described, have not been really tested. And that seems to me to be problematic. Very good. Thank you very much. Let's open the floor to the Q&A. Uh, so lots of questions have been coming in. Lisa has been gathering them and Lisa can hopefully pop up now and tell us which are the first questions that we're going to call. Uh, yes, hello, we've had um, plenty of excellent questions. And what I'm going to do is um, ask people to unmute themselves. Um, if you've asked multiple questions, um, I'll ask you to put one of your questions in particular um, with the aim of getting to as many people as possible. Um, and I hope that we can come to some of your further questions in later rounds. Um, so first of all, um, we're going to go to John Cartledge uh, with a question about uh, voter ID in Northern Ireland. Um, then to unlock democracy um, for a question about the effects um, of the government's plan to get rid of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Um, and finally, to Grother the Owen um, for a question about uh, the Electoral Commission's work in the devolved nations. Great. Thank you, Lisa. So, John, over to you. Uh, thanks. Voter ID came in first in Northern Ireland as a response to what was believed to be a very high level of personation there. Uh, all sorts of stories about the dead voting and improbably high turnouts. It's alleged in the rest of Britain that it's a solution to a problem that doesn't exist because there have been very few prosecutions for personation, because that may be simply because it's very hard to detect and we don't know what the true level of it is. So my question is, what have been the practical effects of introducing voter ID in Northern Ireland and do these have any lessons for the rest of Britain? Right. Thank you, John. Uh, next is Unlocked Democracy, which I guess probably means Tom Brake. Yes, uh, thank you, Alan. It does mean Tom Brake. So right. uh, my question is about the Fixed Term Parliament Act and particularly the impact scrapping it uh, has on third party campaigners in terms of them potentially having to account for all of their expenditure all of the time because they don't know when the next general election is going to be. Excellent. Uh, thank you, Tom. And finally, in this round, we have Griffith Owen. Thank you. Um, as um, mentioned, the Electoral Commission is now separately accountable to um, the Senate in relation to devolved elections and referendums. So my question was concerning the new um, proposal for strategy and policy statement and just the extent to um, uh, that's compatible with Senate oversight and how the panel thinks that that may interact. Um, with Senate oversight. So, for example, um, to what extent may the policy statements direct and inform the Electoral Commission's work in devolved areas? Great, thank you. Um, so, Griffith's question, I guess, is a question very much for Louise. And, Louise, you might also want to pick up either of the other questions. So, let's go to you first. And then I suggest, um, Laura, if you want to come in on any of those as well. And then, Justin, perhaps particularly on Tom's question. Louise. Thank you. Um, I will do my best to answer the question about the Senate, but actually that is a question that we have posed of the government itself. Um, now, there are some consultation provisions that the uh, Secretary of State needs to go through when drawing up the, um, the policy statements under the provisions that are currently in the Elections Bill, um, and that, that 
doesn't actually include the equivalent of the Speaker's Committee, the Clerk in the Senate. So it's, it's, there's, there's no parity there about how they can actually um, feed into the statement being made. And of course, the statement is then agreed by the UK Parliament. Um, so it's a really valid question that we have asked about how this statement would interact with our accountability to the Senate and indeed to the Scottish Parliament as well. That's not a very satisfactory answer, I'm afraid, but that's because I can't answer it because I'm still waiting for the answer. Um, just to touch very quickly on the other ones, third party campaigners and, and the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, um, valid concern. Uh, so it's always been the case that you have to uh, consider certain tests in order for your spending to be considered campaign spending, which we very broadly term the purpose test. Is it for the purpose of influencing voters? Uh, and the public test, is it something that goes out to a, a section of the public and not just to your members? Uh, and the unscheduled general elections in 2017 and 2019 really tested that for third party campaigners. And I think that is a very valid consideration when looking at the Fixed Term Parliaments Act about how that would work retrospectively. We tried to give some reassurance in 2019 about the approach we would take in terms of enforcing and regulating those laws, but it, it's, it's a point that needs to be worked through. And Northern Ireland, very briefly, of course, it did come in in uh, voter ID did come in in Northern Ireland 20 years ago. So it's quite difficult to compare the situation there now with the situation in Great Britain now, because we haven't had a 20 year history of having voter ID in place. Are there lessons that we can learn? Undoubtedly, because now if you look at Northern Ireland, it's very well established as a process. Uh, and if we're going to go down this route in Great Britain as well, we would really want to learn the lessons of how it became so established um, and how it got to the point where people really do know the requirements. Uh, and I'll pause there. Thank you. Laura, do you want to pick up any of those points? Yes, I think to pick up the point in Northern Ireland, we think there's a huge amount of learning that can be done that can guide secondary legislation um, when the election bill is passed. But one of the key differences that we have to remember is that Northern Ireland has its own electoral commission. So EONI, the election office for Northern Ireland, they have oversight of these things. The structure of their polls is very different. Their canvassing arrangements are very different. Um, and we just, the government's proposals are that individual EROs will be responsible for issuing voter ID cards here. So that's around 380 EROs that will have to be making that, um, that work supported by the Electoral Commission and the um, campaigns that they will do to help, help with that messaging. But it's certainly much harder for us to have a coordinated approach as there has been in Northern Ireland in relation to voter ID because of the nature and the structure of uh, the three other nations in the UK. Thank you. Justin, do you want to pick up Tom's question on third party campaigners? Uh, yes, I mean, I, I think it's, it's important to remember that the Fixed Term Parliament Act uh, hasn't been around for that long and restrictions on third party spending predated that by some 10 years. Uh, so so the, the variable election date and third party spending limits were already around. Um, it, it does it does present some challenges, but ultimately, and going back to Laura's point about stepping back and thinking about this, that one of the things we have to bear in mind in elections is that it is candidates and parties who stand for election and who are accountable, and we have to make sure in elections that their voices are, are paramount. Uh, otherwise, you can have a situation where parties uh, are drowned out by uh, third parties. Uh, mass media and so on and so forth. So I, I do I do accept it makes things more difficult. Uh, I do accept that the, the law needs to be thought through a little more clearly as I've outlined, but unfortunately it seems to me that that is a price that was 
implemented when we passed Papira, and it's a price we pay for having uh, accountable parties and candidates and non-accountable third parties. Thank you. Nikki, do you want to come in on any of these questions? No, no obligation, but if you want to, you're welcome. No, I don't. I mean, we might pick up the, the, the um, uh, I suppose voter ID um, and um, uh, the Fixed Term uh, Parliaments Act. I think all I would just say on that, uh, you know, I think it is an interesting point that Tom has uh, raised about the third party spending. I take Justin's point about third party spending restrictions have been in for a while. I would just say on the Fixed Term Parliaments Act that I suspect, um, I think Tom was there when we all marched to the lobby uh, to, you know, in spite of everything we had passed as a bill, to force an early general election 2017. And I think at that point, um, if you've got a bill that you can just bust through, and I fully take Laura's point about um, how, how long the period should be and, and putting in place all election administration, all the rest of it. But if you've got a bill that doesn't really work, then I think that's why uh, ultimately the view has been that it needs to go. Thank you. And if I could just, uh, in response to Griffith's uh, question, um, plug a blog post that from me that will be coming out on the Constitution Unit um, blog next week, which summarises evidence that I submitted to the um, Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee's inquiry into the Electoral Bill. Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the, the, the strategy and policy statement relating to the Electoral Commission does, well, clearly it impinges upon devolved matters, unless there's a legislative consent motion passed in both the Senate and the Scottish Parliament, it will violate the Sewell Convention. And the Welsh minister responsible has indicated that, it's, that in its present form, he will not recommend a legislative con consent motion go through. So there are significant concerns there, uh, and indeed wider concerns about the fact that the Electoral Commission is now accountable to the Senate and the Scottish Parliament and can be instructed by them, but still all of the commissioners are appointed solely on the recommendation of the House of Commons. So there again seems to be some just disjuncture there. Lisa, over to you for our second round of questions. Okay, great. Well, we're going to start with a question um, from Jacob, sorry, Jacob Michael Dyer um, about where the power of misinformation about elections comes from. Um, and I'll then read out a question from Robert Saunders. And finally, uh, I'll try to synthesize a couple of uh, questions from the audience, which are pointing to um, some concerns around a particular area of logistics. Tantalizing. Uh, Jacob, <laughs> over to you first. Yeah, uh, so hello, everyone. Um, so I suppose this question's uh, primarily posed to, to, to Nikki um, for, for, for talking about, um, or, or briefly mentioning sort of misinformation. So the question sort of is, is you know, is the power of misinformation, is the standing that misinformation has amongst people and the willingness to believe it, is that, you know, potentially tied in with more sort of deep-rooted mistrust and misunderstanding of elections and the processes behind them? So what we saw earlier this year with the Capitol riot is the reason people willing to believe that misinformation uh, is, the is, is the reason for that, because they already don't trust the system that's, that's behind it, and so they've just been given a, a reason to do it. Thank you, Jacob. Um, and Lisa, you're going to read out Robert Saunders's question. Yes. So Robert Saunders' question is also about uh, the culture that surrounds elections. So he suggests that as well as legal change, we need a culture of good practice and self-regulation um, by MPs and by candidates in all elections. Um, so, for example, um, a number of MPs at the last election, um, you know, in all good faith, um, posted a doctored video of Keir Starmer, which made some quite serious allegations. Um, amongst those was Nadine Dorries, um, who took down the video after several hours, but declined requests to post a correction. So in, in an age when fakes are becoming easier to make, harder to detect, 
um, and people may share them in all good faith, how can we encourage a culture amongst all candidates of correcting those honest mistakes? Excellent. And then your synthesis. Of <laughs> My synthesis. Yes. So um, I think some of the comments about um, the practical difficulty um, of some potential changes um, sparked quite a bit of interest from our audience. So que uh, questions in particular um, about the time limits um, for getting postal votes to people in Australia, for example. Um, I've had a couple of people come back with questions around that sort of thing. Also about, for example, how the police might need to be trained and resourced um, to deal with online harms and with any complaints brought under the elections bill. Um, and I think what that suggests is there's a general sort of hunger amongst the audience to know a little more about how these proposed legislative changes also interact with other parts of the public sector um, and what we should be thinking about um, in order to make sure that any change that's brought in is workable. Excellent, thank you. Let's go to Nikki and then Laura and then Louise and Justin. And if we manage to do quick answers, then we might just squeeze in the third round. So let's see how we do. <laughs> okay, we'll do my best. Jacob, thank you for your question. Um, I think that you are absolutely right, which is in my experience, um, the people who um, have uh, fallen, I was going to say fallen victim, but I don't think it is, that the people who have seen something that is uh, misinformation and then taken it on board and wanted to complain about it, raise about it, you're absolutely right, there's often an underlying lack of lack of trust in what they're being told, whether it's through um, uh, perhaps the media or, or uh, what they're hearing from Parliament, um, and that is a big challenge for, uh, for all of us. Um, and that is one of the big, uh, obviously, debates um, about um, who is best placed to correct or to rebuild that trust, for example. And we've seen that, for example, with all the anti-vax information, where often it's best to have people from the medical profession or well-respected peers making the case rather than uh, politicians or ministers or, 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 or others. Um, so ongoing, and where it ties in with the second question about the culture of good practice and self-regulation. Uh, um, and of course, this has become a bigger thing because really when I first stood for election, um, you know, you didn't have the opportunity to post uh, videos about anybody. Um, and uh, it, the, uh, now, of course, you put something on, it goes viral, and then, of course, getting it back. Even if you, you do say, well, actually, I'm, I'm sorry to have um, uh, you know, posted that, uh, actually, that correction is not as newsworthy as the original post, which has gone out there and, and you know, potentially uh, done the harm and everything else. But you make a very good point, Robert, about, um, obviously, uh, fakes and the power of artificial uh, intelligence. And, and actually, that's the point that Justin was making, which is actually that electoral law is reactive and often after the event. So the things we're debating now, nowhere does it say, although potentially perhaps the Ofcom code of practice might, actually how you would then correct uh, um, uh, fakes or the use of artificial intelligence in order to look like a message is genuine from somebody, but actually is not. So you're absolutely right about culture. We're talking about problems. In my experience, I, I hope others would agree, that most candidates, most people standing for re-election or election for the first time, want to do the right thing. Most agents try to get it right, and most try very hard not to, um, well, they don't even think about fiddling the system, because frankly, they're just um, wanting to get it right in the, the first place. Um, just the, and about logistics and practical difficulties. Um, so obviously the police do have a role already um, in terms of uh, complaints about um, uh, the way elections are being conducted. I think the police in this country actually seem, in my experience again as a candidate, 
very much get it right in the way that they police um, uh, elections. They have been responsive when I've been a candidate needing uh, some assistance, um, but they also provide a reassuring presence around polling stations and elsewhere. Um, it'd be interesting to hear about um, Laura's perspective, because I think often it is the electoral administrators uh, who will perhaps get the initial complaint or concern about imprints, or whether something should have an imprint or shouldn't have an imprint. And of course, in the digital world, that's going to, uh, to, to, to get um, uh, uh, more real. And I just wanted to, su to support something that Justin has said in his European remarks about online voting. And I do think that ultimately that is something that potentially we are going to have to explore, particularly uh, with um, people voting perhaps from further away and timescales being shortened. Excellent. Thank you, Nikki. Laura? Yes, following on from Nikki, very correctly assessing the fact that electoral administrators and returning officers, generally speaking, will have an awful lot of complaints about fly posting of campaign posters or and not necessarily so much at parliamentary elections but we administer elections at all levels parish councils if you're ever going to have people that are posting misinformation at parish council elections that's the time to see it and it's really important that any changes to the law actually it's very very clear the mechanism for those reports to be escalated and some of them are are probably not of note and they're ones that police would dismiss, but equally it's important for people raising those issues that they feel that they've been taken seriously, that their issues have been heard. It leads me on to another point just to make mention of within the election bill, we completely support uh, expanding intimidation to candidates, um, campaigners. We are very disappointed that returning officers and staff of returning officers were not included in there as well. We see an awful lot of people working in polling stations who are verbally abused because they're being they're telling someone they can't vote, um, that they're not on the electoral register, those messages, which is likely to be compounded when they're saying actually you don't you haven't bought you know the correct ID with you, you don't have ID, you need to have that enabled for me to issue you a ballot paper. So we do think that this is an area that we would like to have seen expanded. In terms of practical difficulties, I could talk for hours about the complaints that I received when I still worked at a council office about issuing people's postal votes. But I think the overarching point is we need to look at the balance between we want to ensure that people can access our democracy. We want to ensure they can register to vote easily, that they can cast their ballot in a way that is suitable for them. But the balance has got to be struck that actually we need to manage expectations. If we allow someone in Australia, for example, to register to vote 12 days before, and we allow them to apply for a postal vote up until 5 p.m. 11 days before, it's reasonable for them to assume that we're going to get their ballot paper to them. Whereas in reality, we know that's simply not going to happen. So there is more work to be done, I feel, to strike the right balance of enabling people to vote was ensuring that they're not accidentally disenfranchised because they're not aware of the full system. People apply for a postal vote and you'll get a phone call five minutes later. I've sent you my application. I don't have my ballot paper yet. They've, you know, that understanding from electors, there's an awful lot of work for us to do. Thank you. Great. Very interesting, Laura. Uh, Louise. Okay, so in, in view of time, I'm going to add rather than echo points, except for the fact that I am going to echo one point that Nikki made, which was about candidates and agents and others wanting to do the right thing. Uh, and on the sort of the party and the third party campaigner side as well, that's exactly what we see. Most parties and campaigners already put digital imprints on their material, even though it's not a legal requirement yet, except in Scotland. Um, and what we want to try and do is to ensure that there's no barriers to people doing the right thing. Everybody understands what they need to do and can comply very straightforwardly. 
Uh, and that does lead me on to um, some of the practical challenges around enforcement and, and the police were mentioned in particular. Um, police forces around the UK have a, a very strong network of officers who are dedicated to elections work, uh, who get training, who get support from us and others. And, and they are the police officers that others have referred to who, who will deal with many of the situations that arise on polling day, for example. They've had less interest in, sorry, less involvement historically in matters that relate to political parties uh, and third party campaigners, which is an area of, of concern that we have flagged in the past. For example, in the 21 years since the Political Parties Elections and Referendums Act came into force, there has been precisely one, one conviction under that act of the 100 or so offences in it, and that was last month. So there is something there about building up capability and capacity uh, of the police in order to try and enforce that part of electoral law as well. The very last point I'll make very quickly, um, Culture of good practice and self-regulation. Actually, there's a lot of organizations and individuals who have some responsibility here in my view. That includes me as, as a member of the Electoral Commission, making sure that we are helping people to comply. It includes the law being very sensible and straightforward to, to actually enact and deal with. Um, it also includes political parties and others taking responsibility for the messages that they put out and how they campaign uh, and really understanding that how they campaign can have an impact on people's confidence in um, campaigns as well. Uh, and one of the areas that it also involves is actually education, educating voters um, really from a very young age. You know, I'm a mother of young children. I'd like them to be learning this already about how to understand and pick through the information that you see online and bring a sort of critical eye to it. We've done some work very recently about digital literacy, about trying to encourage people to look critically at political ads online. Uh, and that really has to be a key part of the answer as well. Thank you, Louise. Very good. And finally, Justin. Well, uh couple of very small points. I mean, I, I think it is important to recognise that fake news and misinformation didn't begin with the internet. Go back to the Zinoviev letter in the 1920s as a, as a shiny example. So it's been going on forever. But I also think, you know, as, as uh, Louise says, you know, parties need to take some responsibility. Um, but also candidates do. I agree, most people do mo the right thing most of the time. But the example about the, the video that was cited, um, candidates need to exercise the self, the same self-restraint in respect of retweeting as the rest of us as public servants do. If I retweet something that's rather unpleasant, my employer and many other employers will not be pleased. I don't see why candidates should be any different. So it seems to me that one could, one could exercise self-restraint in, in not retweeting stuff, simply tweeting material that you, that you want to promote as a candidate. So there has to be, we have to be grown up about this. We can't, can't introduce a rule book, but it seems to me that candidates uh, should behave as public servants are expected to. A very good note on which to end. Um, that uh, second round of questions elicited many deep thoughts and, and, and useful points from you. So I'm afraid we don't have time to go to a third set of questions. Uh, but let me just uh, conclude the meeting with uh, three final points. So firstly, as I mentioned at the start, this meeting has been recorded and we will put the recording on our website, on our YouTube channel and on uh, the, our podcast after the event and we'll let you know. So do please listen to that and uh, encourage others to do so as well. Uh, secondly, we will be having another seminar next term, 
uh, next uh, month, I should say. We're not yet exactly sure what it's on or where it, when it will be, but it will be great. Uh, so do look out for information on the Constitution Unit's website for that. And if you're not subscribed to our mailing list yet, uh, please do subscribe. You can go to the, the website in order to do so. But most importantly, uh, let me say thank you. So thank you, first of all, to our fantastic audience. You've asked many, many great questions, and uh, we will look at those in detail. So thank you to you. Most importantly, thank you to our four excellent speakers. We have touched upon a huge number of different aspects of these two bills here, and there are many, many uh, uh, issues that we could go into in more detail. Uh, final plug, actually. Uh, so we, we had a, a, a post on the Constitution Unit blog this morning, uh, summarising the evidence to the PACAC committee inquiry on the elections bill, and we'll have several more posts over the next few weeks on these matters. So um, thank you, thank you to Louise, to Laura, to Justin, and to uh, Nikki. You have whetted our appetites, you've given us lots of food for thought, uh, and hopefully we will all go away now and uh, consider these matters in further depth. So thank you all very much. <laughs>